I want to begin by uh, really just highlighting where we were last week, right? We were in part 13 of the Empowered Church series, walking through the book of Acts. And really, where we were last week was that we were talking about one of God's greatest guys by the name of Stephen, right? Stephen was a guy that the Bible describes as full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of power, that when you got guys doing miracles and they write in the Bible, he did great miracles, great signs and wonders. This guy is not regular. And it says that he had the face of an angel. So this guy is total Jesus material. He doesn't get super rattled. He's hardcore supernaturally. I mean, this guy is absolutely brilliant with the best integrity. Well, sure enough, this good guy starts getting heat from some of the religious leaders in the area. They think that his gospel is bogus, Jesus is bogus, and so they start debating with him. The problem with that is that the Holy Spirit's with him, and he's super sharp, and he's just decimating them in discussion. And they know that if they don't cheat, they're not going to win. So they do some fake charges against him. They bring him in before the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, they have a bunch of people come in and lie about him and false witness. They start saying, you blaspheme God, you blaspheme Moses, you're against Mosaic law, you're against the temple. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they just have this whole big showdown. They pour all this garbage on him, and now it's his turn to respond. That's where we are at in the series. Now, before we turn to where we're going to be reading, which is going to be in chapter 7, I just want to make it a little bit, I don't know, personal? Because what I'm about to share with you is you got a guy who's going to tell you the Old Testament history. He's going to take stories that take 14 chapters in the Bible to tell, and he's going to tell them in eight verses. He's a master at history. But if we only look at it as academic... We're going to walk out of here the same way as we walked in. We're going to walk out going, oh, that was interesting. No, no, no. Let's make it personal, all right? So I'm going to use an analogy. Hopefully it means something to you. I want you to imagine that you travel abroad. Now, let's say you're studying abroad. You're in another country. You're interested in archaeology, so you end up in the Middle East. There's all kinds of new digs being done. You love history. So you end up somewhere in the Middle East. You end up in a, a rather predominant Islamic country, and you end up in such a remote area, it happens to be an unusually radicalized group, an extremist group. But you're like, hey, I'm only here for schooling and I'm here for archaeology. I'm just going to do my own thing. But sure enough, you're a Christian, right? So you start talking about Jesus, and somebody gets saved while they're on the dig with you, and, and all of a sudden you get a knock on your door. It's the religious police. And they said, we need to speak with you. And you said, what's up? And they're like, we heard that you're a Christian. Okay, yeah. We heard that while you've been promoting Jesus, which let's be real clear here, we don't have anything against Jesus. Jesus is, we consider him a decent guy. Here's my problem. We heard you said he is God. Now, I don't know where you think you're from or what you think you're doing, but you're in our turf. Here in our territory, Allah is the only one true God. You say anything other than that, we consider that blaspheme, and we will take you out. So here's the deal. You're coming with us. They put you in jail. They pull you out the next morning, and you're sitting in front of their brilliant council that knows stuff backwards and forwards. There's no pastor with you. There's no friends with you. There's no spouse with you. You're on. If you answer this incorrectly, all of Christianity feels like it's hinging on you. If you say something they do not like, you will die. You are now asked to represent all of Christianity. What are you going to say? That's Stephen's reality. You see, we forget that these are real people in real situations. I don't know how old Stephen was, but I do know what it's like to be alone and feel like everything's on your shoulders. That's how he felt. So do you have anything to say? 
We are so used to relying on other people for our information. We're so used to being able to say, well, I'm going to phone a friend, right? And we're always so used to this idea of, man, you know, I don't know, I'll get to it, I'll Google it, something like that. No, no, no. It's either in your head and in your heart or it's not in there at all. You don't get to consider anything else, consult any other material. Can you answer for Christianity? Man, that's intense. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Be ready for God's call. Be ready for God's call. You see, the moment you're on, there's no more prep. Whatever prep you did before has to be sufficient. See, too often, we'll say things like, hey, did you read the Word? Nah, you know what? I'm not getting a whole lot out of it. Like, I read the Word, and there was nothing really that applied to me today. I think that's a very immature way of looking at it. Because it may not need to apply to you today. It may need to apply to that person you're going to have a conversation with in two days. It may not even be in two days, it may be in two months, but you're reading for someone else. You're reading and getting that up inside you so that the Holy Spirit at any moment can give a reason for the hope that lies within. You're going to watch, and I'm going to give you a spoiler, he just destroys them in his talk. Like, it's not even close. He blows them out of the water, and we're going to talk about why he was so good at it, why it seems so brilliant. But I really just like making a lot of this stuff personal and go, listen, even as a pastor, if I'm in a pressured situation, what would I do? It's all on you. It's crazy. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 7? Acts chapter 7, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. That's page 914. 914. I'm reading out of the ESV version. Acts chapter 7. If you look and just scan the chapter, you're going to realize it's pretty long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some of it, and I'm going to paraphrase some of it. All along the way, we'll pause and we'll talk about what it means. When we get done, you'll see the bigger picture, put it all together, and understand how it can apply to your life. All right, let's begin. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest, who happens to be Caiaphas... Same high priest, same council that killed Jesus, same council that arrested the apostles and imprisoned them and beat them, same council that has been causing challenges, they got Stephen. And the high priest Caiaphas said, are these accusations against you true? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now we're going to pause right there. Okay, and here's the reason. Are these things that we have said about you true? Now, he could have got super defensive, right? I mean, if it was me, shoot, I would have been defensive somehow, some way. I would have ruined something, right? Because here's why. Here's what he probably would have said. What do you mean, are these things true? You mean the bogus people you've had testify against me? You dang well know you hired them. You know this is garbage. All this stuff, oh, I'm blaspheming God. Dude, I live for God all the time. There's no way I blasphemed him. Oh, I blasphemed Moses. Dude, I love Moses. I never said that. You're distorting my words. I hate when you take my words out of context. And this whole kangaroo court thing that you got going on here, you're supposed to be the good guys. You're not. You're highly disappointing. I can't believe I'm even here. Yeah? Doesn't that sound a little more human? But that is not at all what he said. My brothers and my fathers, what does that mean? Fellow Jews, guys, I'm not some other culture coming in trying to give you heat. Dude, I'm, I'm with you. I went to the same classes you did. I know Yahweh. He's who I've served my whole life. Guys, we're in this together. Anyone my age or younger, I refer to you as brothers. Anyone older than me, I refer to you as fathers. I don't see any women in the room. Therefore, I'm not going to address mothers and sisters. What I'm trying to tell you, gentlemen, is this is a Jewish thing. He's our Messiah. I'm not trying to come in from the outside. You and I are working off the same material. Now, I need you to listen to me. Now, what's so cool about that is, first of all, his demeanor is very gentle. He never is unnecessarily disrespectful 
in his argument. You're going to hear him get pretty hot at the end. You're going to see him get pretty directive, and he's going to call them on their garbage. He's not wimping out. He's not hiding. He's not beating around the bush. He'll get very directive, and it's going to cost him dearly. But he never is unnecessarily disrespective or personally attacking if it did not apply. We got to learn from that. He did something that I think all of us need to learn, and that is he changed the narrative. Here's what I mean by that. You see, anytime you're in dialogue about a given subject, a subject, especially in larger popular society, has a given narrative. It means the storyline everybody's going off of, right? There is a current storyline going off the whole issue between Ukraine and Russia. Depending on what side you're on, there is a story being told out there. There is a narrative. The same thing happens when it comes to Christianity. There is a narrative. Now, the danger is it's very tempting to go off their narrative and try to bend it around and use their framework. You must not do that. You change the narrative. You clear the plate and you start over again and build from the ground up. Why? Because if you start on a bogus foundation, you're never gonna build anything good. Let me give you an example, all right? So, in the last 10 years or so, the media has told me and tried to inflame me that anyone that disagrees with me should be demonized. Doesn't even matter who it is, doesn't matter what the issue is, I should not just disagree with your opinions, I should hate you. As a matter of fact, anything that we don't agree on, I'm going to start making it a bigger deal even than it is. And I'm going to find some way to polarize from you and ignore you and treat you with contempt. That's what we have been taught. So we need to change some narratives. For example, I was told about 10 years ago, eight years ago, that I had to choose to either love black or blue. You understand what I'm talking about? You either love the African-American community or you love the police. Okay, this is garbage. It is an incorrect start. It's an incorrect paradigm. And I'm not following that narrative. Don't you dare tell me it's or. It's and. It's always been and. And Jesus believes in the and. Therefore, I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in all communities. And I'm going to honor and I'm going to love those that are first responders. Do not tell me who I can and cannot love. And then if I love one, it means I can't the other. You change the narrative. I have been taught my whole life that depending on what church I'm in, either Christians are Democrat or they are Republican. That is trash. Here's why. Because it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. Stop telling me that how we believe the nation should be run is equal to Jesus. Stop it. That's not true. Because here's the reality. What I'm going to do is change the narrative. The narrative is, wherever you stand on the aisle, I'm going to treat you with respect. I will disagree with your views. I will disagree with your perspectives, right? But I'm not going to harm you. That's not appropriate. Okay, we've been taught in our, in our culture, the current cultural narrative is that if you love and accept someone, it means full affirmation in everything that they believe. That's a wrong platform. No, I'm not doing that because here's what the Bible says. I am going to love you. I'm going to embrace you, but I'm always going to lead you towards God's best. If whatever current viewpoint you have is not God's best for you, I'm going to love you in a direction forward. It doesn't mean I have to suddenly shut off everything that I've learned from the Lord just to love you. That's incorrect. I'm going to do both at the same time. And we can keep going on. The cultural narrative says that we are all evolutionary accidents. I'm sorry, we can disagree about how God created, we can disagree about how long it took, we can disagree about what order it did, but it always begins with, and God said, let there be. So however we wanna play this game, 
I'm clearing the table. I'm not going off trying to argue evolution with you. I'm clearing the table and saying, you know as well as I do, we are not accidents. You know it in your heart of hearts, so we're gonna start with the platform. I'm recreating the narrative. The narrative says, we don't know a lot, but there's one thing we do know. God said. Now we can talk. Does that make sense? Okay, so what he did is he just said, guys, you've said a lot. I don't wanna build off what you've said. I wanna clear the table, and I'm gonna change the narrative. Let me take us back and I want to show you what I see. And then he begins the Jewish history lesson, all right? So let's pick it up here uh, in verse 2. Side note, why was he so good at this? I mean, you're going to watch him masterfully do this, right? Like I said, he'll take something that took four books, and he'll do it in 20 verses. Like, how, why was he so good at this? I, I think that there's at least three reasons. The first one... He knew his Bible, right? He knew his Bible backward and forward. Number two, he knew his Lord. He wasn't operating out of defensiveness. He wasn't operating out of dysfunction. He wasn't operating off reaction. He's like, hey, I know my Lord. Whatever you do to me is not going to change who I am. He was in a very settled place. And the last one, he never lost his cool, right? You guys, so often we do have truth. We do have scripture but our attitudes ruin it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm like the master of this, okay? So I'll be in a conversation. Like, I don't have a lot of regular conversations that because of the nature of my job, things don't usually come to my desk till they're usually a big deal, right? So my job is really having difficult conversation after difficult conversation, right? And here's what I'm the master of. 75% of the conversation, I am nails, right? I'm like, man, I'm in the pocket. I got the right attitude, I'm all about Jesus, I'm all about the other person, I'm being all mature, and then 25% at the end, nosedive right into the ground. I lose my cool, I'm not godlike. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? And then you, you just feel like every time you get done with those conversations, you're like, dude, you should have just shut up like 15 minutes earlier, and it would have been so awesome. Like, why did you have to ruin it? You know what I mean? Like, it happens so often with me. I'll be so much tracking on the Lord, and then my flesh, like, squirrels out, and I just kind of ruin everything. I'm like, oh, why? You know, right? It's tough. It's tough. All right. Let's hear his history lesson. He's going to begin with Abraham. That's where the Jewish people began. Okay? So he's going all the way back to their beginning. Here we go. Verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land we call Israel in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, but he didn't have any children. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Quote, but I will judge the nation they serve, end quote, said God. Quote, and after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place, end quote. And God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Pause. Why is he telling them Jewish history about Abraham? Okay, a couple things. In order to try to keep this stuff straight in your mind, sometimes we go back through the Old Testament and we have a hard time tracking on characters, right? Because there's so many names and so many things happening. Here's an easy cheat sheet. You just need to memorize four names, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Burn that in your mind. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's dad to son to son to son. You're pretty much through the whole book of Genesis right? Okay, other than the creation stuff and Noah at the beginning. All right, that's the whole book. 
The reason why that's important is those guys are called the patriarchs. They're the forefathers. They're the old school, original Jewish guys. All right, why are they so important? Well, Abraham's the father of the Jews. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a kid named Jacob. And if you remember, Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. The whole reason the nation's called Israel is that dude. He has 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is called Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's what he's going to lay out. So why is he telling them about Abraham? Because here's, he's in a Jewish room, and he's like, hey, guys, you believe in Abraham? They're like, dude, come on, don't insult me. Of course I believe in Abraham. He's our man. Okay, cool. Well, you do realize that Abraham is outside your box. They're like, what's that? Okay, let me explain. The Jewish culture, ancient Jewish culture, is completely wrapped in Moses. Why? Because Moses received from God the Ten Commandments and all the codes on what God expected. The Jews made that their culture appropriately. They were so good at navigating their system, their system became everything. They would measure everything according to the Mosaic law. Does it say this? Does it not say that? They had all their control systems in that box. They were arguing that Stephen and Jesus did not fit in the box. So what's the first thing he did? Hey, guys, you guys believe in Abraham? Of course we do. You do realize he was before the box, right? That just blew a bunch of what they were trying to argue out of the water. Why? He said, before we had all those codes and systems, it was just about relationship between Abraham. It was just about faith. It was not about following a system. There was no system. So stop telling me what God can and cannot do based on your box. Your box isn't big enough. If we're going to talk about how God works with his people, we need to expand our parameters a little while. Yeah? All right. So we're going to start talking about Abraham. Here we go. So then he says this. Just like God started out with Abraham and he predicted all the way through like the Exodus, God called his shots early. He's like, guys, everything I'm bringing you today, this is not a one-off random thing. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that was promised and he's been part of the system the entire time. It's not a new movement. It's an old movement. All right, let's keep going. That boy, Joseph. Remember? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Y'all remember that story of Joseph, right? He said, okay, here's how it goes. You got this super gifted young kid. He supernaturally sees visions and dreams. He's brilliant. God's hand of favor was upon him. His family hated his guts. You guys remember that? His brothers literally sold him for cash to a foreign nation. They not only dishonored him, they betrayed him. There's no greater betrayal than your family selling you to bad guys for profit. But we all know that just because mankind rejected him doesn't mean God rejected him. Is that correct? As a matter of fact, he was the promised child. He was the one God was using more than anybody else. So whether or not people rejected him does not dictate whether or not he's being used by God. Anybody seeing the tie-in to Jesus here? <laughs> the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. That does not automatically mean that God is not using him. He said, all right, let's keep going through the story. You guys know how this goes, right? So Joseph goes through hell and back. You remember his story. Not only is he enslaved, but then he ends up getting thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit, gets forgotten there, left there. His whole life is terrible, but God's hand of favor was upon him. Keeps rescuing, keeps rescuing. Finally gets him to the right hand of Pharaoh. You remember this part of the story? They're gonna have this big famine and he brilliantly comes up with this idea on how to store up grain so that when everybody needs it, they can buy it and Egypt suddenly can get more wealthy and successful. And 
Well, come to find out, his family is dying in the famine. They end up coming up. The guy they rejected, they now have to bow down to, right? And get food. He finally comes out to them and says, guys, it's totally me. You just have to, you know, you got me, right? Like, I'm your guy. God sent me here through all this pain to provide safety for you. That sound like Jesus? Okay, so pretty obvious. Jesus goes through hell and back, literally, through hell and back for what? The security and safety of his people. The whole time we watch and we go, oh my gosh, Joseph was living a life that was an explanation of how Jesus was going to live his life. This was all prophecy. This is amazing, right? Oh, how weird. The family that rejected him the first time, later would every knee would bow and every tongue confess. They were wrong. What's going to happen with Jesus? First time he came, he was rejected. Second time he comes, what? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You think that's not prophetic? He's like, all right, let's keep going, right? You, well, let's go history. Here we go. Y'all are inter interested in Moses. Keep throwing Moses in my face, Moses in my face. You're blaspheming Moses. I am not. Let's go with his story. You guys remember this, right? So God gets, under Joseph's care, the Hebrew people. Well, there's about 70 of them. Well, he keeps them there for 400 years. They don't go anywhere else, so when they're all together, they multiply like bunnies. There's like a billion of them now, right? Well, then Egypt is like, oh my gosh, there are slave labor, but if these guys revolt, we're in serious trouble. We got to double down on bad treatment of them. We got to keep them under our hands. So they're brutal. They cry out, God, you got to save us. He's like, good timing. I'm going to bring a deliverer. All of a sudden, Little baby Moses. Oh, look, he's so cute, right? They bring him. They're like, oh, stick him in a basket. Throw him down the river. He starts going down the river, right? And, and little Pharaoh's daughter, right? She pulls him out. Oh, he's so cute. Can I keep him? And then she keeps him, brings him into the palace. He gets trained up in the best universities, right? All the way till he's 40 years old. At 40 years old, he was like, hey, wait a second. I'm not Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew, <laughs> right? And he was like, I can't even cover it with my eyeliner and my mascara. <laughs> I know who I am. So then he goes out and he was like, oh my gosh, my people are being treated terribly. He's like, unhand that man. And then the Egyptian's like, no, I won't. And he goes, Ugh, and he kills him. And then he's like, oh my gosh, I got to totally hide the body. But he's not good at hiding bodies. So then everybody finds out about it. And the Jewish people are like, dude, I never asked you to deliver us. Who do you think you are? We don't want you. We reject you. He's like, well, fine. And then he finds out, Egypt, Egypt finds out that he killed one of their dudes. And he's like, oh my gosh, my dad's gonna be so mad. And then he was like, ah! And so he runs out into the desert. And he goes out into the desert and he goes out at 40 and he's out being a shepherd for 40 years. What is 40 plus 40? 80. So when he's 80, he then is walking along. He's like, do, 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 do. And there's a burning bush. He's like, oh my gosh, a burning bush. And then he goes near it. And all of a sudden he hears Moses, Moses, right? And then he's like, take off your shoes. And he's like, yeah, yeah, good idea. So then he's like, you got to be my deliverer. He's like, oh, you totally got the wrong guy. I don't want to do that anymore. And they get in an argument. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then he's like, you will be my deliverer. So he goes into Pharaoh and he's like, plague, plague, plague. And he's like, hey, Aaron, tell him this. Plague, plague, plague. And just completely demolishes Egypt, right? And then Egypt is like, fine, get out of here. And they leave in what's called the Exodus. They go walking through walls of water in the Red Sea and they end up at the mountain of God. He's like, you know that story? They're like, yeah, totally. <laughs> He's like, then why am I recapping it? <laughs> right? He's like, well, you guys aren't tracking? You don't, you don't, you don't see that. You, you don't see the connection here. Come on, guys. Do you not you know your Bible? Did not Moses say, in the future, one will come just like me? A prophet of God who will lead his people. You're telling me this isn't prophetic. You're telling me that when Israel rejected Moses' leadership, 
It's not like when you rejected Jesus' leadership. Moses received the law of God. Jesus said, I finished that one and I'm revealing to you a new law. Are you not watching the parallels? I mean, think about it, guys. Even who's the one that led us into the promised land? A guy named what? Joshua. What's Joshua in Greek? Jesus. I'm sure that's not an accident. He's like, dang, everywhere you look, you can see the handiwork of God. This is one long narrative. You're not watching it. You keep saying that this was an anomaly. It's not an anomaly. This Jesus is the one we always thought he would be. Okay, fine. Let's talk about the golden calf incident. Great. So you guys know the golden calf incident, right? It's like one of the most embarrassing Jewish stories of all time. While Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, they're downstairs going, hmm, I want a cow. He's like, what the heck? They make a golden cow because they want something they can get their hands wrapped around. They want something they can control. They want something that's familiar. As a matter of fact, the whole time Moses tries to lead them, they keep saying, I'd rather be in Egypt. Wait, wait, you want what? You would rather have slavery than a new way of doing things because it's hard. Are you kidding me? He's like, guys, do you not see it? Jesus came in with a new way. And he's like, guys, I'm trying to get you grace. I'm trying to get you freedom. I'm trying to get you salvation. I'm trying to deliver you. And you keep hanging on to the law. Because what? You're cool with slavery? You're cool with limits? Why are you doing this? You just want your hands around it. You like familiar. You like something you can control. All I'm trying to tell you is God says there's more. And you're not doing it. And what happened when Israel rejected Moses? They're like, well, it didn't go well. He's like, I know. That's why I'm warning you. You think God's going to take it easy that you just killed the Son of God? Okay, you guys attack me and say, oh, you're against the temple. I'm not against the temple. Let me make my argument. Would you guys turn with me to verse 44? Our fathers had the tent of witness, that's the tabernacle, in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses, meaning God, directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of King David, who found favor in the sight of God, and David asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was actually his son Solomon, King Solomon, who built the temple for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. I mean, look at what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 66. God said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. So what kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? What is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's like, guys, you, you tell me that I'm dishonoring the temple. I'm not dishonoring the temple. The temple's awesome, but it's not an idol. God told you from the beginning, hey, kiddos, I'm bigger than your planet. I'm bigger than your solar system. I'm bigger than your universe. I'm bigger than your reality. And you're going to make me, what, a box to live in? Dude, I can't fit in a box. The temple's awesome. Yes, God comes down and says, hey, buddy, we can have coffee there. That's really cute. But I can't live there. It's really small. He's like, God never said that the temple was all of him. If I say anything against it, I'm simply telling you, please keep things in perspective. God's bigger than the box, right? Then he's, then he's like, all right, guys, I'm going to wrap this up. I've done enough history lesson for today. I'm going to wrap this up. Go to verse 51. This is where it gets very pointed, right? Here's how he closes. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? 
They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Messiah, the righteous one, whom you, by the way, literally not that long ago, betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels, you didn't even keep it. I'm done. Mic drop. You think that's going to cause a reaction? Okay, this is where you go, okay, so he lost his cool. He, he kind of got a little personal and, and, and called them names. No, nope, hold on. I don't think so. Where did he get the phrase stiff-necked from? In Exodus, God calls Israel that four times. So he's like, hey, dude, if you want to talk about name-calling, God taught me that one. I wrote it down. I've been using it ever since, right? Like, I feel like it's really descriptive. Because what, is, what does stiff-necked mean? It means what? Stubborn right? You're not turning your head. If you had a horse, you put a bit in its mouth so you can turn its head because wherever the head goes, the rest of the body goes. Is that correct? But if the horse doesn't turn its head, it's going to keep going straight. You have no control over it. All right, great. So God says, that's like you guys. I can't even work with you. You think you know it all. You think you're stuck in one place, and I couldn't turn you if I tried. You are stiff-necked, And then he says, you are uncircumcised in your eyes, ears, and your heart. What was his point? Guys, you keep going, oh, we're the children of Abraham. We're circumcised in our bodies. He's like, yeah, your outside looks great and your inside's trash. So stop with this. Who cares how good you look on the outside? If you're dead, who cares whether or not everybody at church thinks you're a good guy, thinks you're a good lady, if God doesn't think so? Y'all tracking with me? This is ridiculous. You guys keep, oh, I'm religious, I'm religious, I'm religious. In that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never even knew you. We never had any relationship. You just played the game. So you need to change the inside more than the outside because you always resist the Holy Spirit. Every time he tries to come in and breathe fresh life into you, you shut him down and shut him down and shut him down. Which of the prophets did we not persecute and kill? Man, we sawed him in half. We killed them by drowning. We cut off their heads. We constantly persecuted them. Why? Because you never like someone telling you that you're wrong. Well, I'm going to tell you what. You're wrong. And here's the sad truth, gentlemen. You're supposed to be our leaders. You were supposed to be the ones watching for the Messiah. You should have lifted him up on your shoulders. You should have marched him in front of us, and you should have led a parade. You should have told us, Jesus, the Messiah, is here, and you didn't. You had one job, and you failed. And now, yahoos like me have to tell the truth, and I'm out here all by myself being Stephen the good guy, and I'm trying to tell what you should have done. Well, you think that's not going to cause a problem? (laughs) Ouch, right? What was their reaction? Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, and Stephen blurted out, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, let's pause there for a second. What's going on? He just saw the heavens opened up. I don't even think it's a vision. I think it's just God showing him this reality, right? He just rips heaven open. Why was he standing? You guys know the rest of the story? Like, what does the Bible say? And when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins... He died and rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he what? Sat down. You guys, why did he sit down? Because that's part of the story. When Jesus died on the cross, he said the words, it is finished. You sit down when you're done working. So that was a visual of him saying, there's nothing more I need to do to secure your salvation. Does that make sense? But then you're like, he stood up again. 
And he's like, well, I wasn't glued there. It's not like I'm just like, hey, uh, anybody want to bring me some berries or something? Like, he's like, I do lots of things. I get up and I sit down, I get back up, and then I go do stuff. Why was he standing? Because his kiddo needed to be brought home. He ripped heaven open and he said, hey, buddy, nicely done. Come on. You're with us. They don't even deserve you. Like, I'm just telling you, man. I, the Son of God, I'll stand for you. So proud of you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, they just keep saying stuff about you that's not true. I know you. You come with me. I got you. How cool the Son of God receives this young man into heaven. May he do that for all of us, amen? Gosh. So, him blurting that out, did it help? Nope. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said it, he fell asleep. Hmm. A couple things there, right? Do you guys know what stoning is? I mean, you can kind of picture in your mind. Here's what's interesting. The, uh, stoning still happens today. It's just very rare. Happens in some extreme pockets in places like Iran and things like that. But, and there's actually rules and regulations on it and stuff like that. Nowadays, the modern version is they wrap you in kind of like a sheet so you can't move, and they bury you up to your chest in the ground and they cover you over, and then everyone throws rocks at you so you can't move your hands and get out. That's how it works. Well, the ancient version, there was actually a manual in the Jewish literature on how to stone somebody properly, which I just thought was weird, right? Like a manual, which is really neat. Now you can get it online. You don't have to have the... <laughs> you just go onto YouTube, and there, there's a little how-to, which is nice, in case you lose the paper. And I was reading it, and I was like, this is so bizarre, because I didn't know this. So here's what they said. You begin by shoving someone from the back 12 feet down onto rocks. You're like, well, that's pretty specific, right? And what it means is either there's a pit dug out, and there's rocks at the bottom of it, and you push them down there. That's probably more likely where they have a location. But if not, you take them to a higher place, and you shove them down. If they do not die from the fall, then the first witness goes out and throws a rock at them. Now, the rock is not supposed to be any larger than maybe the size of a tangerine. You're not supposed to kill them immediately. This is supposed to be a little bit more of a process. So you throw a rock at them. Then the judge comes in and throws a rock at them. Then the rest of the community picks up rocks, and they begin to throw rocks. It can take anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. And they're just pummeling you to death. While Stephen is dying, and it could have just been a makeshift, we're just going to throw rocks at him, Right? But the whole key is you don't want them to run away. Right? While he's dying, he says two phrases. Pretty significant phrases, yes? What's the first one? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What is his whole point? Jesus, take me home. I'm ready to go now. Right? It could have been I'm hurting. It could have been you're my help. I don't know what it was, but he just cried out because he had just seen Jesus. And Jesus is like, I got you, kiddo. Okay? So what's the second thing he said? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where in the world did he learn something like that? Right? Where? His hero. Isn't that what Jesus said when they were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's what's so stunning about Jesus and Stephen's response. They're being killed, and they're still interested in saving their enemies. So interesting, that's not how we argue with people today. We're interested in destroying our opponents. They were interested in saving them. Because here's what they knew. If their eyes were truly opened and God let them see what they were a part of, they would never be doing this. The only reason they're doing it is they're blinded by the enemy. So why are you attacking the person? Why are you not trying to save the person? 
even if what they're doing to you is evil. Y'all tracking with me? This is powerful. All right. And they happen to lay their coats at a young man's feet. He's overseeing this because he was super zealous. What was his name? Saul. Now, is that famous? Sure is. What's his name going to get changed to? Paul the Apostle. One of the greatest theologians of all time, one of the greatest evangelists that Christianity has ever seen, one of the greatest missionaries and church planners the planet has ever seen, but he's not Paul yet. He's still a bad guy. As a matter of fact, what you're going to find out is he's a Christian hunter. How do we know that? Let's keep reading. It says, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a bad dude. Why were they laying their cloaks at his feet? Here's what he was saying. Hey, guys, it's hard to get a good throw with that many clothes on. Like, I'll, I'll go ahead and handle your gear. I need you to be able to throw without throwing your arm out. How wicked is that? And sure enough, what? He then doesn't calm him down. He's more on fire. And what's he doing? It's not even like it used to be. They would try to grab the apostles when they were out at the temple or they're in public square. Nope, this guy is hunting in people's houses. He is finding out information, getting people to turn on everybody else, and he's going in and he's tearing them apart and he's grabbing them and throwing them in prison. Now, did you see it? Who did he throw in prison? Men and women. Is that significant? You better believe it is. Why? Because ancient Middle Eastern culture is you can go in and pillage, you can rape, you can damage, you can hurt women and children, but you don't need to capture them. They're not worth it. Not until you get to the Christian church. Why was he capturing women? Because they were just as much leaders as the guys. That's new. You don't ever throw women in prison unless they're part of the leadership. So you automatically realize Christianity is doing things very different than anybody else in the Middle East. And Paul knew it. And he was like, get that lady, she's part of the problem. Get that guy, he's part of the problem. Throw him in prison, we'll deal with them later. And this guy is just on fury. Is the enemy winning? No. Did the bad guys win? No. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, look, where were they scattered? They already covered Jerusalem. The next place was southern Israel called what? Judah. Then it was northern Israel, which is called what? Samaria. It's all going according to plan. It's not going to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Because you know the person that breaks that open? He ain't saved yet. That's Paul the Apostle. Everything is according to plan. You're like, but hold on. Then why did Stephen have to die? Because that was his assignment. Kiddo, I want you to love me with all your heart, and I want you to die for me. I'll take you home. I'll get you safe. But I want you to die. Because your blood is gonna pour out into the ground, you're gonna be the first Christian martyr, and it's gonna launch the church all over the world. And that Paul guy, we have a lot to talk about. But right now, I'm gonna infuriate that guy, and he's gonna spread everybody everywhere. And he thinks he's winning. Oh, I'll teach him. It's gonna be pretty sketchy for that dude. He's going to hurt a lot. But this isn't an accident, team. This is how we do it. Hmm. So we close with the same question I asked you at the beginning. This is your assignment. How are you going to do? Right? God, I'm sorry, what's my assignment? To witness and die. 
is there another one? <laughs> right? No. How are you going to do? Because here's, here's what I fear. I fear that you, like me, may be having a story written about us in the, the Bible of today. You do realize God's still working, right? He didn't stop after the Bible ended. He's still doing stuff, and we're still the church, so there's kind of still stuff being written, if that makes any sense. As we carry our lives out, what does our story say? Because here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid it says, and the Holy Spirit whispered to Lance and said, kiddo, I need you. But Lance said, I actually have some things I need to get done first. And that's where the story just stops, right? Because we all think it's going to be dramatic, and we're going to be this awesome hero. How are we going to be an awesome hero when we can't even do it day to day? Listen, I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. I'm just here to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to fall of saying, guys, I don't know whether or not the Lord's agenda is important to us enough. Feel like the world's got too much of our attention. He does in my world. And I'm a pastor and I'm struggling. I don't know what it's like for you. It sounds hard. So can I just pray that God would capture more of our heart as we close out? Is that all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we read stories of martyrs, God, our first reaction is defensiveness, and we're always scared, saying, God, don't make that be me. And then all of a sudden, there's this conviction that comes over us and says, Lord, could I even do that? And then, Lord, I guess we at some point reflect back and say, Lord, how come you didn't use me like that? So, Lord, I just pray that in this holy moment that you, Holy Spirit, would begin to melt more of the hardness of our heart, capture more of our passion, become more real in our vision, begin to take over more of our schedule, creep more into our hearts that we might be fully and wholly sold out for you. God, would you ignite a fire that is undeniable in Jesus' name we pray, amen.